Welcome to the Theology Podcast. We're really glad to have you with us. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And I've written some things, including The Household and the War for the Cosmos. That's enough about me. So uh, why don't we have you, uh, Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I have a host of interests, and uh, most of them show up on this show from time to time. And so, right, this right. is very, very good for, for me. <laughs> well, we're glad for to have you. And Glenn, <laughs> introduce yourself and tell us about what we're talking about today. It's your day. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I also run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries, which comes, the name comes from a quote from Abraham Kuyper, who said, there is not a single square inch in the whole domain of human experience over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not cry out, mine. Mm -hmm. And that is actually a good introduction to what I wanted to talk about today. And that's the idea of creational theology. Now, I have uh, a number of friends, mentors, uh, who are really big on creational theology. And they talk about it a lot. Some of them are really particularly interested in the ancient Celtic church, which put a lot of emphasis on the natural world. And to be honest with you, you know, I was a Boy Scout and all that kind of thing, but I'm basically a suburban guy. (laughs) I spent almost all my life in the suburbs. And the closest I get to the natural world is this small strip of wood lot next to my house where I can watch woodpeckers occasionally. (laughs) I'm not really that, I'm not that outdoorsy, okay? So this idea of creational theology has always kind of intrigued me, and I've always had a sense that it's really important and that it's something that I needed to develop. But I'm, I'm really kind of busy, and I don't really have time to go out in the woods or whatever, and, you know, I was, you know, just a bit of a struggle trying to figure out how to do this. Well, this past week, over the past few days, I've been up in New Hampshire with my wife of 40 years. In fact, we were up there because we were celebrating our 40th anniversary. Congratulations, Glenn and Lynn. Right. And so um, we went to New Hampshire. We were originally going to go to a number of other places, every one of which was shut down because of COVID. was still open. <laughs> so so we drove up to New Hampshire and we spent... A, you know, spent now, 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 people who are not New Englanders would not understand why that doesn't surprise us. <laughs> yeah, New, that, New, Hampshire, New Hampshire is our most Republican state and uh, yeah, actually and more libertarian than Republican. And their state motto is live free or die. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so we visited some friends up there and so on. And then we were, we're heading up into the White Mountains, which is an absolutely gorgeous area. It's really, really beautiful. And I've always appreciated the beauty of the natural world, but I never connected it to theology. But as we were going up, there was a guy, um, I had a CD in the car. Yeah, we still use old technologies. Um, A guy named Josh Bales. Uh, Josh is a uh, family counselor, you know, a psychologist or or, uh, whatever the right word for that is. Uh, But he's also an Anglican priest. He is actually the most talented worship leader I've ever seen. He's very, very good. 
And he's got a number of CDs with uh, original songs and hymns and things like that. But there's one song that was on called Count the Stars. And he talks about, his words are, being under the sacramental sky. Mm. And looking up at the stars. And the song is about all of the different things that the stars are to remind us of in terms of God himself. And the word sacramental here is really the critical word because what, what a sacrament is, all right, but let, let's get the sacraments themselves, baptism, the Eucharist, and if you're high church, maybe a few more. Um, but just think about the word sacramental. The, the concept here is that there are things in the physical world that point beyond themselves. They point to deeper spiritual realities. And so when you talk about something being sacramental, it's something in the physical world that points beyond itself to something deeper. Now, if you think about the Lord's Supper as an example of this, the bread and the wine point to Christ's body and blood. However you understand that relationship, there's a connection there. It also points to probably half a dozen or more other things that I can think of off the top of my head. The layers of, of meaning that are involved in the sacrament of the Eucharist are, there's just layer upon layer upon layer, and I doubt I've gotten to the bottom of them. But in the same way, if you think about back to the idea of creational theology, and Josh Bales was the one who really sort of opened this for me, in the same way, the physical world has a sacramental function. It isn't a sacrament in the same sense as the things that Jesus gave us, but it points beyond itself. It points to deeper reality. And you can see this if you read the scripture. So I started thinking about count the stars. In the first place, my mind went, all right, if the stars are sacramental. What else is? And the first place my mind went was to trees. Because in Psalm 1, you see the reference to uh, the man who, the righteous person, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. You know, so this is the image of, of solidity, of security, of even when hard times come, you know, it may not be bearing fruit all the time, but its leaves are still green. It's still got life. And when the right time is right, it produces fruit. So I started thinking about trees. Now, I'm in the middle of, of White Mountain National Forest. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I started thinking about trees and what, what, how the trees are, what the trees are supposed to be telling me. And walking along streams and looking at the trees there and thinking about that's what the righteous person is supposed to be like. And you know, then we can think about God's righteousness being like an ever-flowing stream. We think of his righteousness as being like the mountains, and I'm looking at the mountains. All of these kinds of things sort of gave me a different perspective and a different feel for the scriptures. The scriptures, in a sense, were giving me a way of unlocking the meaning of the things that God created. So yeah. this might be an interesting thing to sort of explore. Right. Well, I've been doing a little work on the word mystery uh, recently uh, in connection with my book on Bombadil. And mysterion, of course, is the word that eventually gets translated into the word sacrament. Right. A mystery. Uh, now, when we tend to think about mysteries today, 
Uh, we tend to think in, the, in sort of the Sherlock Holmes mode. You know, it's like a puzzle that is solvable. And then when it's solved, it's done, you move on to the next. It's kind of like an equation or something like that. Uh, but it, but it, as, essentially, the, there's no sort of meaning there. It's just sort of a, 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 a thing to resolve or a problem to resolve that you can master, right? But a mystery in the sense that the Greeks uh, conveyed is something that is exactly what you just described, Glenn. It's something, there's something inside of something else. There's something kind of, there's something hidden. And that hidden thing is the real thing. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's no, because, because even when we think about analogies, like when we think about scripture and the, and the language of scripture and the use of uh, the physical world tends to be the case that modern people will say, Oh, well, God, isn't that marvelous? God uses visible things and things we can touch to communicate, you know, sort of things analogously, but more in the sense that this is like that, but this doesn't contain that, you know, yeah. uh, and so there's a distance, there's a space, there's a kind of distance. It's almost as if, uh, isn't it so, isn't it too bad that our mental faculties are so weak that we have to use physical objects to kind of get at spiritual truths? That's kind of the way I think we approach these things today. But I think, your friends in creational theology are thinking about it at the way, the way you're thinking about it, Clement, is that creation is in some sense contains the glory of God. Uh, mm -hmm. There's something hidden in there. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. The, I think, mm -hmm. if you look at Augustine, Augustine talks about the sacraments, not sacramental in the sense I'm using it. The sacraments, he does, he describes them as being a visible promise promises to do certain things to us, but because our faith is weak, he gives us tangible signs to help us to understand his promise. Thus, he says, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins, so he gives us baptism as a ceremonial washing, as a way of helping us to, to latch hold of that promise. That's almost, though, the, the other sense of, of what you're talking about here, that this is, this is a crutch for us. Um, there's, but there's, I think if you go to the Orthodox tradition, especially, there's a whole lot more to it than that. Yeah. It strikes me as being far richer and more actually more satisfying too, because it, what is, it's more capacious. It, it brings into our spiritual life, the fullness of God's creation, not just sort of one sort of segment of it, you know, particularly as reformed, you know, we love the cerebral quality of uh, you know, propositional theology. Um, we're not very tactile. We're not very sympathetic, generally speaking, to this kind of thinking. Yeah, and I, I think the, I mean, I think in all the variants of of kind of Christians wrestling through this in the various traditions, that could, trying to get a hold of the way in which the visible um, manifests the invisible attributes of God in which they are clearly seen, right, as a mystery, of course, but but yet, you know, the, the pre presence, you know, there's all the kind of stuff held up in the absence and presence, the hiddenness and the revealed. Um, so, so a lot of times, yeah, you either get concepts of the relation that seem so far apart or where there's a cut. And I think the, the classical Christian understanding or the ways they wrestled with it um, was to 
keep that distinction and yet create that intimacy. I mean, it was an, an eminence that is so central to everything creaturely that the creaturely clearly manifests it and is significant to manifesting it. I mean, to that, that I think Augustine is right, is it brings it home to us um, because we, we aren't we aren't such that we can just kind of rip ourselves out of our embodied creatureliness. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that the, the bodily and the creaturely is merely a, a, a stepping stone. And I think that's where it can go wrong. Um, the incarnation and the continuance of the incarnation. I mean, this is why with someone like Jonathan Edwards, when he talks of the beatific vision, he takes the classic Christian vision um, but he, he wants to say that we, we encounter the beauty of God eternally, God face to face in the face of Christ incarnate. So he doesn't want to, um, he doesn't want it just to be kind of a, a purely spiritual that, that dismisses the rest of our, our createdness. But then the other thing, you know, I often think about is um, the strong emphasis that came in with, I mean, it's one of the things I think Aquinas really found attractive in in bringing insights from aristotle into into his thinking about creation is because it allowed him to talk about when when a creaturely thing which is good unfolds its own good it comes to its own fulfillment there is in the fulfillment of that creaturely good a a actual analogy created with the source that is our fulfillment and the good so there's also a turn to the creaturely world to see it flourish towards the purposes of God, because when they reach that good and aim for that good, the good of God is manifested in that that creature that creature uh, unfolding itself according to its created purposes. So there is a much more intimate way of relating that and that analogy. So where the creature becomes significant without becoming autonomous. Yeah, the the interesting thing about this is again, if you look at the ancient Celts, you know the the Celtic Church, and that, by the way, could be another entire show because we we tend to forget. I mean, even in church history classes, we never really talk as much about the impact of the Irish Church as we should. Um, Christianity came to Ireland at a point when the Irish didn't speak Latin and didn't really have much of a written language at all. And, but they had a concept that holy people, a, a, a spiritual person, a spiritual leader, needed to be someone who understood everything about the culture. They were really the repositories of the entire culture. That was the concept of what a holy man was. And the net result is... Ireland became the land of saints and scholars, and the two of them were essentially synonymous. Because when Ireland adopted Christianity, they wanted to absorb everything that they could from the Christian world. Um, and that included the entire Greco-Roman civilization. And they actually became major, a major cultural repository that reintroduced education and things like that onto continental Europe. But part of their spirituality was very, very much involved in looking at the natural world and seeing in the natural world pictures of God. And you can see this in Ireland. You can see this in the old prayers that you would find in the Orkneys and the Hebrides and so on, if you can actually find these, where when the sun rose in the morning, when you first saw the sun, there was a prayer that you recited to the sun, not as a deity, but as the sun, as the image was, the sun is the eye of God. 
Now, it's not literal, it's figurative and all that, but they saw in the sun. In, in this period, they believed that eyes saw things by reaching out and touching them. Light came from your eyes. Yeah, you, you see it in the hymn, thine eye diffused the quickening ray. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly what it was. Thine eye diffused. I was going to, about to go there, in fact. Okay. Okay. That that was that was how it was believed that the eye worked. You know, we we feel something when we touch it, when we hold it. In this case, my cider. Um, <laughs> but in and in the same way, the eye sees things by reaching out and touching them. So, light, in a sense, light comes from the eye. The sun is the eye of God. It's the the image that they use. Not again. It's not literal. Sure. We, think of this as being some sort of pagan whatever, although I think it was a holdover on some level from paganism, but a holdover from a good part of it. Like, I think that one of the things that we don't have an ability to, to, to accept uh, is, the, is the notion that reality is kind of a series of images mm-hmm. a sense, in the sense that there's one who casts the image, but then there is the way in which the images, you know, capture that and, and represent to us the the one that it's uh that they reflect and so uh in a sense everything about reality then is in some sense a reflection of god uh human beings because we are the image of god fully and this is something i think the ancients understood are the fullest expression of God because mm-hmm. we're the we bring it all together, so to speak. Right, but that yeah, doesn't mean there's nothing they talked about, In the Renaissance, they talked about human beings being a microcosm. We right. incorporate, we're, we participate in time and eternity. We're physical and spiritual. We are rational and sensual. All of these things, everything that is involved in the creation, is found in us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, and, it's that idea. And I think, though, but when we think about the glory of God being seen in creation, what are we, what are we saying? We're saying, in some sense, the, 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 the glory of God is reflected, uh, refracted, uh, transmitted to us. You know, there's this idea of radiance with glory. Um, and as we see the creation around us, what are, what are we seeing in and through it? Well, we're seeing something of the glory of God. The glory, you know, when you think about the word glory, it's it's again this this sense of uh, radiant, the radiance, this this kind of uh, going out forth from God. Well, that's not, interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, the Orthodox uh, East, uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox, often criticize the West because it it does something. They they like to use the essence energies distinction because, of course, we don't. I mean, all all of the Christendom we don't we don't uh, fathom the essence of God, right? Um, but so, therefore, their worry is that in the West, by not talking about it in terms like you just did, as God's glory being God's energies moving towards outwards towards the creature, so which isn't the same as it, it, it's in continuity to the essence, but it's not the essence; it's it's the it's the energy of that essence, right? Kind of like the light from the sun, if you will. Um, and so it is permeating like the light does from the sun, everything. It's, it, it's aluminum, and yet it is connected to that essence, where they're afraid that we either 
because we don't have the essence of God in the West and that we don't talk of energies, we end up with basically the glory of God being being a creature almost rather than than the creator itself. And so that's one of their criticisms of oftentimes. But I think you're, you're right in terms of when you're talking about it biblically and theologically, you have to start talking about exactly the way you just put it so that what we're talking about here is the way in which God is... Um, it, you know, it's it moving out towards kind of like the sun, the, the rays from from the sun. Right. And, and this, you know, the Reformed are always very adamant about the creature-creator distinction, which is a good thing. Yeah. But the glory of God is something to be considered as uh, kind of a bridge yeah. um, between the creature and the creator. It's It's, as, you know, we've talked about the outgoing, the sort of the, of, from God, so, like when we, when we think about, like when we think about the confession, the Westminster Confession, you know, the shorter catechism, you know, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Well, when we talk about glorifying God, is that something we kind of work up and we increase God's glory because of our efforts? No, I mean, anybody who's Orthodox knows that's absurd. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what? But what is it then? Well, it's it's actually in some sense receiving God's glory. And reflecting it back toward God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a huge distinction and an important one. But that means that in some sense, we've got to know the glory of God. And any way that we can tap into that, (laughs) shouldn't we do that? You know, in our last show, we were talking about science. Mm -hmm. When you look at the origins of science, Kepler, one of my favorite quotes, Kepler talked about uh, the the task of science. Well, we he didn't use the word science. They didn't think of it that way. But he he said it was to think God's thoughts after him, and he saw what he was doing as a work of theology. That as you study the universe that God created, it reveals the mind of God. And then you could go up to even the nineteenth century. Someone like James Clerk Maxwell, who talks about science as being something that reveals the glory of God in a unique way. I think we've almost completely lost that concept. Yeah. That the universe itself reveals God's glory, that there is something here that connects us back to God. And we shouldn't be surprised at this because the universe is something that God created and he didn't just do it randomly. Yeah. You know, we can look at the Psalms that talk about how God is revealed in, in the natural world in just sort of even things like the fact that the grass grows in the spring to feed the sheep. You know, that is an example of God's goodness. You know, um, you know so, but somehow I think we have, we have put ourselves in a position where we bought into the lie that science and religion are different things, different realms, they're different worlds, so that we can study the physical world scientifically, but it has no real relevance to our theology. Um, you know, this is what is formally called the, the fact-value distinction, that the world are, is a world of facts, but values like religion and things like that are separate, and so the connection between the creation and the creator is cut. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, and I think the uh, the other thing is because the the imagine we don't see things Christianly anymore. It's it's been increasingly eroded, and even as Christians, we see things very with very little. Of, of really, I think, what most Christians have seen through most of, of history. Um, and because of that, we tend to read creation as specifically the way it's almost given to us through scientific explanation, whereas the layers of meaning that you see in the hymnody and the psalms and parables, um, th- those are kind of referencing, yes, you know, the things that we have, but they're also referencing with that deeper imagination and spiritual vision um, that it doesn't become reductionistic. And uh, and I think that's one of the, the key retrieval points, I think, that we have to, to bring not just the emphasis of formal and final causes uh, into the conversation with natural science, but actually to talk about a rigorous theology of nature as creation and those ways in which creation is manifest with the glory of God, but how, how Christians are to see and interpret that rich notion of creation as, as related to the creator and, and, and this huge spiritual vision um, of the glory of God in all things. I mean, I think the hymnody and the Psalms have tended to be the vehicle to communicate that stuff more than kind of explanations you know, of how profound, you know, and how complicated a cell works or something. There is something there, but there, there is, 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 scripture tends to use, you know, the glory seen in the heavens, right? Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Um, And and it uses this very deep evocative language to talk about the way in which it draws us up into, um, you know, worship and and adoration, Um, and and so I, you know it'd be interesting to think hard along those lines of of creation and nature um, in a in a very full um, enchanted vision, if you will, from from the whole whole Christian worldview. You know, the first time I got a little bit of an inkling of this is oh gosh, decades ago. Um, I was driving to work. Uh, this is actually before I even went to grad school. And I was going to be making a left off of a, in, in a sort of divided highway kind of situation. And as I was waiting for the light, I looked out the window. And what I saw was just a huge amount of trash on the ground. Butts and things people had thrown out and so on. And in the midst of this, this really, frankly, disgusting pile of garbage, there were flowers growing. <laughs> And, you know, I thought, you know, the world that God's created is so full and bursting with life that no matter how hard we try to defile it, it is, it is still going to find a way to express that life that God's put, put into the world. That was sort of my first experience with anything like an insight from a, a, a kind of creational theology. Um, yeah, I remember a couple of others actually connected to hymnody. But it, but well, let me give you an example from something that I've been just like the last few days thinking about because I just literally just got back yesterday from this trip. So he is like a tree planted by streams of water. There are two possible images, it seems to me, that come from this. One of them is the wild areas in the White Mountains where you've got trees, and the other is a manicured park. Yeah. Both of them are legitimate. Yeah. What 
difference between the two? Well, if you are in the wild mountain area, you've got branches, you've got fallen trees, you've got all kinds of bracken, you've got all kinds of, it's, it's messy. It's not, it's not pristine and clean. It, it's pristine in one sense, but in another sense, it's kind of a chaotic thing. Yeah, yeah. Case, it requires effort to maintain and, and keep it manicured. So if we're like trees planted by streams of water, which scene are we? Yeah, are, good... we are we sort of the wild area where things are messy and uncluttered, uh, mm. but kind of uniquely beautiful in its own way? Or are we, do we take the effort to clean it up and produce a manicured park, which is also beautiful in its own way? It's not like there's anything wrong with either of them. But to get to the manicured park, it takes effort. It takes maintenance. It takes work. It takes cleaning up the mess. So what does that say about how we function as Christians trying to be righteous people who live like that tree planted by streams of living water? Well, what comes to my mind are are different sorts of Christians. I, I guess I've known a few white mountain scraggly oak types <laughs> hanging over the stream. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, uh, but I've also known uh, some pretty refined people who uh, I think fit that image of the manicured scene. I'm, as you were describing it, I'm thinking about my own property. I've got a, a brook that runs across the back of my property. And for about 15 years, I've thought, wouldn't it be great if I were to manicure that and get it all cleaned up and I could have a nice set of chairs down there and I could enjoy the stream and all this kind of stuff. It's a good, it's a good brook. I mean, it maybe eight to 10 feet across. It's got some interesting swirling stuff that's going on and little frogs <laughs> and things. And, uh, but it would take a lot of work. Yeah. And the question that I have, the, the other part of it is what are the implications of this? If you're a pastor. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting I mean, it, I was thinking um, uh, in, in relationship to it, actually a little bug flying around my phone, which is kind of, <laughs> it, it knows we're talking about creation. So it wants to see if I'm going to let it live. So I, 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 I will, I'll show mercy on this. <laughs> but uh, one of the interesting things you could almost say, I mean, someone could, could take that question you asked, Glenn, and say, okay, does that mean, you know, the goal is basically to, to remain planted the right way in, in, in God and then flourish, and, and, or one reads it as I, I sort of have, I'm the agent of cultivating this. And I, and I guess I, I go back to sort of what Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you live in me, the, uh, the vital principle will bear fruit. And so that fruit bearing could, could go look either way. It could be just the, the way in which I, I participate and trust fully in, in God and God's purposes. And it could be something like that, that allowing allowing the creation and my part, being a part of the creation to kind of to, to unfold the way it does messy in, in a, in a fallen world yet still showing the beauty of God. Or it could also be that, you know, part of that being in God resting and planted is the fact that I'm going to bear fruit. And there is a part at which I am cultivating and, 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 you know, working out my own salvation and fear and trebling, but completely resting in, in the grace of God. That's the, that's the vital aspect working its way out so so you could say kind of the wild garden or the one in which i am 
a part of my creatureliness is giving some kind of shape to the glory of God too. And that could be one's own life or, or, or anything. So, so I think the creaturely doesn't have to be an either or it doesn't have to be um, sure. just, yeah. Yeah. Now the one thing it can't be is concrete banks. Right. right. Yeah. That's the one thing that is excluded here. Yeah. Right. And because that's sterile. Right. Yeah. There's no life. Yeah, intentionally sterile. That's the whole mm-hmm. point of the concrete. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, this image of the of the sort of the the, the gnarled oak hanging <laughs> over the stream with vines hanging down and and uh, roots kind of uh, jutting out in every direction reminds me of a, of a, of a guy I was a pastor to. And uh, when I was on Cape Cod, I had a guy named, in my church named Vinyl Savage. <laughs> Think about that. Having a guy named Vinyl Savage. It, it's like being, uh, it's like Grace Slick or something. You know, it's one of these names that says you should be a punk rocker. But Vinyl uh, was actually uh, from, from down East Maine. So he was a maniac and he was, about as ornery and as uh, wiry and strong as you could be. He was a Mason. And uh, I knew him in his, in his seventies and he could outwork, you know, men who were in their twenties and thirties. He took great, great delight in doing so, (laughs) but he was about as sharp tongued as you could be. He loved the Lord, but he had very strong opinions too. And he was kind of like a burl on a tree, you know, you, you come up against this really hard, hard thing. And it's just, you know, and in one way, it's beautiful because, you know, those burls are prized by uh, bull turners because of the way the, the, you know, the, the grain works in those. But anyway, I remember one time we were going to build an addition on the church, about a million dollar addition. And so we were in a building campaign, and you know how these things work. You you, you make a, a model of the addition, you know, to get everybody excited to give to the to the project. Anyways, Vinyl was dead set against it. That, Vinyl thought that Americans should be more like Haitians, that we should all be shoulder to shoulder and pack the place out, you know. And I said, you know, it just wasn't realistic. But anyway, uh, one day the model disappeared. <laughs> Vinyl stole it and never brought it back. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the breakfast I had with Vinyl when we had a talk, <laughs> and Vinyl gave me his case for why we shouldn't build the building. And I said, Vinyl, you can keep the model, but we're going to build the building. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> but anyway, it was, but it, uh, he was a guy that when his funeral, I, I buried him, when his funeral uh, was conducted, the place was packed. And half the people were as mad as could be about him one second and laughing at some weird thing he did or said the next minute. It was just one of these things where people's emotions, they were on the one hand, I hated him. On the other hand, they loved him. (laughs) It seems the sort of guy who would just show up at your house and fix things and do things for you and then tell you, you know, how stupid you were for doing this or that. (laughs) Uh. <laughs> you know, again, the, I, I think the point, I, I'm just beginning to delve into this area more. Like I said, I'm a suburban kid. But it, it seems to me that there are some really interesting things that are worth pondering here. You know, what, what does that, I, I mean, you know, I've exegeted Psalm 1, I taught Psalm 1. 
you know, any number of times. And, and yet I never thought about it in terms of what kinds of trees grow near water. You know, what, what does that look like? What, what is the environment like? What happens if you have a whole bunch of righteous people who are all like trees planted by water? What does that look like? You know, and, and so these kinds of questions are the things that I've been, been sort of pondering. And as, I've been, as I was go, taking hikes and things like that, I kept trying to reorient my vision toward these kinds of, well, sacramental notions. I think it's, uh, yeah, I, I just think I found it really enriching personally. And I think it's really worth, worth pondering and worth, worth pursuing further. Well, it's, it's, uh, it, because it, it all goes back to one of the themes we've talked about over and over again, that the world has meaning. We're, we are in a world of meaning, not just fact. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting that I was also, because I've been doing a little bit of uh, legwork on a kind of uh, tracing uh, on the one hand, nihilism, sort of essentialism, romanticism. But I was reading them I mean, in, in, you know, comparison with the content of the book of Ecclesiastes. And one tends to think that, you know, there, there is this kind of bleak, almost, you know, uh, you know, dust in the wind kind of uh, song going on there. I know that I think you mentioned that having more of a, a Buddhist notion, but, but anyway, there is, there is this notion that, you know, everything, you know, Hebel, everything is, is sort of, um, not meaning this isn't the lacking meaning is not the best term there. Um, but it's the transitoriness means I cannot, human things cannot be something that one can, can, um, really rejoice about because it, it doesn't have the anchor. And so therefore it leaves a very bleak, picture of things if the only thing is human-centered meaning in history and it, there this is sort of what's going on everything is temporal it's going to run out whatever i do I, I work i do toil it's going to run out and who cares justice doesn't end up working out in the here and now in human history but the comparison at first is it, the permanent thing is not at first the creator it's the creation it's actually the you know so i what I recognize by human transitoriness and lack of meaning is illumined for me by the permanent cycle of the sun. You know, in the sun, that in, in the language of, of Ecclesiastes, the sun is kind of rushes to, to almost breathlessly to, to go back up, right? It, 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 it is loyal to its created purpose and function and doing what it does. Now, I, I find that very interesting because it's not saying, you know, nature is endless and meaningless. It's actually saying nature's constancy, similar to what we get in Genesis, the ordering of the days, sets the pattern for, for, for human meaning and everything else. And Ecclesiastes is almost showing that something has happened where we've become detached from creation and that cycle. And somehow our life is meaningless because it is somehow illumined by that cycle and shown to be, and I think this is where remembering the creator is what brings creation and our place in it away from the meaninglessness and the transitory uselessness of our labor here and actually is the hope under our sun. So I really think that, that Ecclesiastes sounds like it would go the other way, but I was actually affirming your point here that our connectedness, creator, creation, its cycles, its flows, its images, its patterns, um, they illumine us in some sense, they expose us in some sense, but they orient us back to 
what needs to be a, a complete vision grounded in God. You know, well, uh, Ecclesiastes talks about God has placed eternity in our hearts. Yes. Fact is, we know we're not going to live forever. Even the tree planted by streams of water falls eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, by the way, makes the analogy to the mountains, God's righteousness and God's justice being like the mountains. Yeah. When you look at the transitory nature of trees, which dwarf our lifespan, compared to the mountains? Yeah. I mean, it speaks again of God there. Yeah. One of the things that comes up in my mind when this subject is raised in any way has to do with modern life and the divorce from natural processes and cycles, which I think it was what we've been getting at. Are we uh, somehow handicapped? in our ability to think in these ways because of technology and urbanization and so forth? I think we are. I mean, I started off by talking about the fact that I'm a suburbanite. I've been a suburbanite all my life. And in a very real sense, I mean, you know, there's a sense in which you can see nature around you all over the place, but there's another sense in which the, we have managed to insulate ourselves so far from it that we don't really experience it anymore. I'm in my sort of air-conditioned house, window air conditioners, but at least it's something. I go from there to my air-conditioned car, and then I park my air-conditioned car and walk into an air-conditioned store or my air-conditioned office or something like that. Or if it's in the winter, let's get rid of air conditioning and switch it to heat. (laughs) You don't experience the world Directly, it's always mediated by human intervention. Yeah, and and, it, and its intervention is disconnected from 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 nature. In other words, it knows how to it knows how enough about nature to to um, to con- to create the conditions to control things, but it's not being shaped the way nature is oriented. And and this is why classically, I mean. Um, Nicholas Lash has this great uh, article on silence and speech and, and faith. And one of the things he's talking about, the way in which we've lost, we, we just having the Christian beliefs, but being unable to see Christianly has been lost. And he talks about the retrieval of, of story, narrative, liturgy, and those things actually is a positive in many ways because they reconnect us. They're the way the imagination is reconnected to nature as it is grounded in creation. And so this is, this is one of the things that I think the previous generations of Christians that have not been impacted by this, this uh, and, and I think a lot of what came in with the Enlightenment, whatever it's gained, was a continued detachment from, from that. I mean, think of, think of uh, you know, a, a figure like Heidegger, right, who wanted to kind of reconnect everything, right, but he wanted to do it in, you know, through the structures of human existence. But what does he say? He said the structure of human existence is such that we have we have we're we're temporal, we're finite. So he retrieves this. But what does he say? He says we find ourselves thrown into nature, into existence. We don't have a choice in that. And he considers that something very negative almost. And he says it's positive in the sense that it, it makes us realize we're finite and and now we have to bear the burden of our choices. But it almost interprets creation and our, our createdness, our contingency and temporality, 
as as basically something a necessity forced on us now to which we through our choices are going to have to determine all meaning and purpose and everything else so you have this this even attempts to reconnect us are such that we're disconnected and we we're we're, we're driven towards and heidegger was a big critic of technology um if if i'm if i'm correct on that i think i remember doing a show on that and yet on the other hand he has set the table completely for that kind of manipulation well one of the things you brought up uh, there tom it has to do with liturgy and how kind of the revival of interest in liturgy today is a is a good sign and i, I think that's right but but i think the way we experience liturgy is a very different thing than the way say people did 300 years ago or more uh for them Liturgy was a sort of compression yeah. of, of reality uh, in the sense that it was drawing on things that they were uh, dealing with, uh, you know, all the time, every day. People saw life and death all around them. Yeah. Uh, they felt the seasons and, it's, and their significance yeah. of them. They felt the passage of time in a way that I think we, we kind of conceptually understand, but we, we are almost completely divorced from. Yeah. Um, so all of that was compressed. For us, it's a different experience. For us, it's like a reintroduction, re- reintroduction to reality through a virtual reality. Yeah and, see, yeah, and that's where I think there's a problem because yeah. I don't think when we so so what would a liturgy look like in our highly constructed technological world? I don't know if you can really have a healthy one, frankly, because everything is so mediated. Maybe it yeah. really does look like the Tonight Show. I, I don't know. I don't know. But 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 see, that's the problem, and that's what I was kind of getting at with my question for Glenn was, how do we, how do we re uh, sort of inhabit creation? Because it seems to me like we've withdrawn from it. Just a just a Glenn's example of air conditioning, for example, uh, yeah. or central heating. You know, in the past. The technologies that we've developed to address heat in the summertime and cold in the wintertime were communal. Summertime, you had a porch, and everybody had a porch. Everybody would go out and sit on the porch, and you'd (laughs) see your neighbor, and you'd wave. You'd hold up your glass of iced tea and and say, hi, how you doing, that kind of thing. So it was a neighborhood thing. and, if, you know, in many neighborhoods, you know, the houses were that close together. You could literally have a conversation with the person next door without raising your voice. Uh, and then the hearth in the wintertime. Everybody had to be in the room where the fire was. You didn't want to be somewhere else because you'd freeze. <laughs> and so now central heating. And I'm all for central heating in one sense. I like the fact that my whole house is warm. <laughs> I'm all for central air. I've got central air in my house. I'm, uh, that's great. But uh, there are these downsides that just don't seem to ever get into the calculation. You know, why, why uh, this is not always a, a strictly sort of just full gain, maybe a net gain, but there are costs, well, anyway, you, you know, looking at it from a different level, I I think frequently about television, internet, and things like that um, as being now our source of entertainment, where we used to get together and play music and sing songs and play cards and tell stories and so on. We've eliminated the communal side of it, 
everybody goes off and does their own thing, looks at their own computer, looks at their own screen or whatever. And the technology actually stands in the way of community. Yeah, yeah this is the triumph of the introvert. This is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. They need to hey, do it. It's type of a mean note to a university or something and get make people think there's an army of them out there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anyway, we're getting to the point where we should wrap things up. Um, anything you want to say in conclusion here? Uh, we'll, go, we'll give Glenn the last word. I've, I think I've said everything I have to say. Anything you want to say, Tom? No, I think I think a lot of these things have to be thought through hard, and, and I, I know there is, um, you know, there there's there's some a, a lot of gains in retrieval, but um, as McIntyre, uh, Alistair McIntyre said, a lot of times we retrieve, we're still not seeing things the right way, and they're they're getting reshaped, and and um, by by our retrieving, and so there's a lot of things, hard things to think about here, but I think we need to, and I think the church needs to take a long, rigorous. Um, spiritual fast, if you will, and prayer to discern the shape the church should be forming itself towards in conformity to Christ and the creation we've been given, and not just keep going with the the advances in technology and the radical shifts that are going on without uh, raising deep questions about our connectedness to that. Anything you want to say, Glenda, as we wrap up? Yeah, if, if you're interested in the subject, uh, where I started off was looking at the things that are around me and thinking about what script, the places where there are analogies in Scripture. Now, you got to know your Scripture. So you got to know Psalm 1, you got to know Psalm 119, or excuse me, Psalm 19, um, uh, Psalm 8. Uh, there are any number of them that we can point to. But when you read scripture, notice what it has to say about the natural world and how the natural world reflects something about the character of God or our character or, you know, whatever. There are theological themes that are introduced there. And then when you encounter those things in the natural world, think about those themes that are brought up in scripture. I think that's the entry point to this. Like I said, I'm, I'm a newbie at this. I'm just sort of feeling my own way. But that I found to be something that was really helpful for me personally. And then once you see the connection, start playing with it, start working with it further, start thinking out what it means. Uh, like I just did with the tree planted by streams of water. Okay. So start, uh, that would be my suggestion on how you might want to begin proceeding on this. Like I said, I'm new at it. There are probably better ways or more detailed ways of doing this, but I think that's a good start. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Glenn. Well, we're really glad that you've uh, tuned in once again to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your time. I guess the only thing to say as we conclude is we do have a big conference coming up in Nashville in October, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network Conference. And I know at this point, Glenn and I will definitely be there and Tom is hoping to be there. We hope that you'll be there too. And if you want to learn more about it, just go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network website, and I think that there is a plenty of information there to help you know how you can come. But it's going to be in Nashville, Tennessee. I believe it's the, is it the first or the third? First or the through the third. Yep. And make sure you introduce yourself when you come. Yeah, please do. We're, we'd not love it. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks a lot, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.